0: Our theme this semester has been seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And tonight we're going to talk about Isaiah chapter 44. Uh, You don't need to turn to it in a Bible. I think I gave everybody uh, a copy of the scripture. Uh, Isaiah chapter 44. This is uh, one of the most uh, extensive passages on this issue of idolatry. Now, I, how many of you guys have seen that movie "Gladiator?" Guys ever, ever, a few of you? Um, there's this great scene where is it, I forget the guy's name. What's his name?: Maxwell. Yeah,. Maxwell, yeah, where basically there's, there's a scene where before one of his, one of his, his battles, he's like got these little little statues, like little idols, and he's sitting there in his, in his room, and he like prays down to them and, and bows down to them and prays that they would help him. And I think some people are like, yeah, idolatry, that's like kind of what people in olden times, before they knew better, um, you know, they they did that. They worshipped the stars and the trees and all that sort of thing. But what the Bible says is that's not just something that afflicts ancient people. It's actually something that is at the root of really all of life and explain so much about the way the world actually is. Because what the Bible has to say about idolatry is that what it means to be human is to be made one who worships. You can't not worship something. Now people have different ideas about what is the essence of being human. Is it to be one who reasons? is it to be one who thinks, one who's creative? What the Bible says ultimately behind all of that is that to be human is to be one who was made to worship. And as Romans chapter one says, you will worship something. So the issue of idolatry and worship is not just an Old Testament concept. It's in the New Testament as well. Um, And and, and we're going to look at that tonight. Now, Isaiah 44, to me, is one of the the most beautiful and one of the most extensive passages to get into this. And we're basically going to kind of go through it verse by verse. But a couple concepts, big picture things I want to say by way of introduction. First, you are what you worship. You become what you worship. One of the things that this passage is going to show us is that worship shapes and molds us. And as we sang in that hymn... Hast thou seen him, known him, heard him? Which is really, like we could just sing that hymn again and go home and I wouldn't have to preach. Because it really captures the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight. And it's this, our hearts are only going to be drawn from lesser treasures as our eyes are opened to see the real beauty and the real treasure that we have in God. Thomas Chalmers, who was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian, uh, called this the expulsive power of a new affection. Expulsive power of a new affection. What he means is, when a new love comes along, it expels that old love. You might know this as uh, the phenomenon of being on the rebound. If you've ever you know, had, had a crush on somebody, or you've ever you know, been in love with somebody, and then that... And you really never get over it until a new love comes along. And what Chalmers says and what the Bible says is something is at work in your heart spiritually that's very similar to that. That until a new and more beautiful love comes along, you can't really get past these lesser objects of beauty. The second thing I would say is that when we talk about worship, when we talk about idolatry, we really are talking about a war. And and I know, you know, maybe you've heard the term worship war, you know, related to whether we sing hymns or like choruses or modern songs. Uh, I do think actually this talk tonight has relevance to the kinds of songs we sing. I do. But that's not the worship war we're talking about. The worship war here um, ties into something John Calvin said. John Calvin said very perceptively that our hearts are idle factories. That that we're always looking to put our hope in things other than God. And you might say, why? And it usually gets down to this. We would love to trust things that we feel are more controllable. The problem, of course, is if you put your hope in something you can control, it can't actually have any more power than you do. So there's like this irony. You want to trust something you can control, whether it's your beauty, your charming personality, your skills, your intelligence, your grades, your family background, whatever. You feel like you can control that, and thus it's a more controllable, safe way to live, but then regularly you find that that isn't enough and doesn't actually have any power that would exceed your power. And do you bow down to things that have no power and say, save me. It's ridiculous, but it's sometimes hard to see that as we're going to see in this passage. Um, the other thing is this. Worship is not just something that happens in church. Actually, all of life is about worship. Uh, all of life At every moment of every day, life is presenting to you a vision of the good life. Belmont University presents to you a vision of the good life. So does the advertiser. So do the songs you listen to and the movies you watch and the books you read. The idea of what is good and beautiful and desirable is constantly at work on you. So this is relevant for everything. And then finally, worship, worship, coming to worship the true God is about restoring our sanity, restoring our sanity. Now, let's look at Isaiah 44. This is one of the clearest places where the Bible talks about adversary. And and right as we come to the beginning of this, I want you to to see how it begins. In verse 6, it begins with this idea that there's a war here. God lays down the gauntlet by revealing who he is. He doesn't just reveal who he is. He reveals who he is like a dare, like a challenge. Listen to these words. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, that means the Lord of angel armies. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me, let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. In other words, all these idols that claim to be gods, they don't know the future. I'm the one who tells the future. And in the book of Isaiah, you actually have 25 chapters at the beginning of the book, of God making short-term verifiable predictions about all the nations to authenticate that Isaiah truly speaks for God. So God says, one of the ways you know that I'm the true God and that Isaiah speaks for me is he can tell the future. Verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. That's that's trash talking, right? That's God laying down the gauntlet. Listen, who is like me? Whenever you're tempted to worship something other than God, that's a really important question for restoring sanity. Who is like me, God says. Who is like me? It actually, I guess, shows that the less you know about God, the less you'll be able to use this kind of question to help restore your sanity. It's one of the reasons why you know theological knowledge and knowledge of the Bible isn't an end in itself, but it's actually very helpful. Because when other things vie for your heart's affection, it's really helpful to say, well, hold on. I know what God is like. I know who he is. I know what his word says. And so I can fight against these things that vie for my heart's affection. I I love this as well. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. In other words, the heart of what it means to have a God is to have a rock, to have one who can be trusted, who is trustworthy. And if the one who sees all and knows all says there is no other rock, well, then there is no other rock. Now, your hearts lie to you all the time and tells you that there are other rocks, that there are other things you can depend on, but the sovereign God, the king of the universe, the one who sees all and knows all, says there is no other rock. There is no other rock. If you think there is, you're crazy. Literally what he's saying. And he's saying, get ready to rumble because I'm laying down the gauntlet. This is a war, And God is taking up arms and saying, who would stand before me? Then he begins to get into this description of what idolatry is and how it works. Look at these next verses, verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, that means look at this. All his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He works it with his strong arm, becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a pencil, shapes it with planes, marks it with a compass. He shapes it in the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the field trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. In other words, he cuts it down and he takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes his bread and he makes a god out of the rest of it and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire Over the half he eats his meat, he roasts it and is satisfied, and also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and he worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Whoever said that sarcasm had no place in the Christian life or in the Bible? Because Isaiah is just mocking The foolishness of idolatry. He's like, let's think about this, guys. Right? Let's think about this. A carpenter takes some wood, half of it he uses to make a fire, to cook his food. He says, oh, I love the fire. Makes my food, I can eat, keeps me warm. And then he takes the rest of the wood and he carves a little idol and he bows down to it and says, you are my God, save me. The problem with the idols is they can have, they never transcend the weakness of the ones who worship them. In other words, how can you say to something that you've made with your own hands, you are my God, save me. Now you might think, well, that's why we don't worship little statues. Because that's ridiculous. Well, what are the kinds of things that we are tempted to worship? What are the things that we're tempted to worship? Do I have any people pleasers in here, maybe? Yeah, a few? Think about this. You know, people pleaser is basically one that says, you know, I have to have you like me for life. Right? And I'm going to make you like me either by sort of charming you before you have a chance to reject me, or by never speaking the truth so that you'll never reject me. Of course, until you find out that I didn't tell the truth. And then you'll reject me. And of course, you know know when you put your hope in something that you know is not worthy of that, it makes you actually more vulnerable. When he talks here about how the one who like the, the, the guy is working over the, over the anvil and, and making the thing and then he doesn't drink any water and he gets faint. Like that's it. You put all this energy into protecting your reputation and it actually makes you more vulnerable. It actually makes you more vulnerable. And then you begin to have to guard it with your life. This thing that you thought was going to make you more secure ends up actually making you even more vulnerable and more insecure. So when you put your hope in everybody liking you, it actually makes you more desperate, and the more desperate you are to make everybody like you, the, less people get anno- the more people get annoyed by you. And it's this kind of vicious cycle. Idolatry is foolishness, It's ridiculous in some ways. And actually, one of the things that is helpful to do, if you can begin to understand what is it that I'm tempted to put my hope in besides God, one of the things that's worth doing is shaming your idols. Basically saying, okay, come on. Pull back for a sec. Think about this. Let's think about this. I think that my life is dependent on what other people think of me. Other people who might here's something that's not even true, that I don't know they heard, and now they've changed their opinion about me and I never will know what happened. Is that really a good way to live? You know, in RUF, one of the things that we tell new campus ministers is, listen, as long as you're an RUF campus minister, your reputation is in the hands of 18 and 19 year olds who don't really know you. (laughs) Right? So if you're a people pleaser, goodness, that'll just kill you. Or it'll wear you out trying to make sure everybody knows your side of the story. And you just can't control people like that. So it's ridiculous, right? And, and God goes on and talks about the ridiculousness, but I, I love the where it goes next. He talks about the binding and the blinding power of idols. So verse 18 is interesting. Verse 18 is sort of a double entendre. You're not sure if Isaiah is talking about the idols themselves or the idol worshipers. But I actually think it's both. Listen to what he says. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, "Is there not a lie in my right hand?" Now, now let's let's pull this apart a little bit here. For they know not the thing about idols, little statues. Is they may have eyes carved into them, but they can't see. They can't see, right? That's obvious if you just step back and think about it. But what I think Isaiah is saying here is not only do the idols themselves not see or not know, but those who worship them are also blinded. They can't see. Their hearts cannot understand. Verse 19, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Look at verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. Now, the deluded heart means that at the core of who you are is worship. And when worship goes astray, it clouds your understanding, and it also affects the way you live. So some people think, you know, the problem with human beings is they believe the wrong things. So we just need to fix what they believe, or what they understand, or what they know. So education is a solution to to all of our problems. Other people would say, no, the real problem is our feelings. Like, maybe we haven't been loved enough, or maybe we feel bad about something, and we just need to fix our feelings and not feel bad. Um, Other people would say, no, the problem is really, we, like, do the wrong things. Like, we mean well, and we try, and we have good hearts, but we just do bad things sometimes. But what the Bible's teaching us about idolatry is the deluded heart affects what you think, what you feel, and what you do. And and the deluded heart actually, actually, well, the the way Tim Keller puts it, I love this, he says, idols create delusional fields. In, In other words, when you believe a lie, a bunch of other lies start to congregate around the lie. So let's, let's take our people-pleasing um, example. If you believe the lie that I have to have people like me for life to have meaning or to life to be worth living, that's a lie, okay? But, but what else happens? You begin to say, if this person rejects me, I don't know if I can live. That's, that's an extra lie. Or if people knew who I really was who I really am then I, I would never have any friends that's probably a lie too but it's a lie that seems more reasonable in light of the first lie and it just kind of multiplies that way not only that what do you think it's like to feed on ashes doesn't seem very filling to me does it not a, a really a, it's a great image Worshipping lies, worshiping idols, is like feeding on ashes. And the thing is, if you're feeding on ashes, you're probably going to keep having to eat more and more and more and never be satisfied. The thing about idols is, the more you put your hope and trust in them, the more they require, and the more and more they require. And it's this vicious cycle. He can't deliver himself, verse 20 says, or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? In in the Bible, the right hand is a a particular image. Do you know what it's an image for? It's an image for strength. So so what Isaiah is saying is, you can't say that the thing that you think makes you strong is a lie. Uh, And I think there's a couple ways to think about this. The first point out of this is that we make idols out of our strengths and out of God's good gifts. The thing that you think makes you powerful is the thing that you're tempted to think makes you matter. And the more you put your hope in it, the more vulnerable you become, but also the more blinded you become. You can't Deliver yourself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Here's what it means. Psychologically, you can't let go of your strength until you're convinced that you don't need it. You can't can't cut the ground out from underneath yourself. But when God throws down a life rope, You can look up, like we talked about last week. So you can't save yourself because you can't let go of the thing thing that you think is saving your life unless you realize that God has already given you what you think you need to get from your idol. And that leads us to this next section, which is this, the gospel is God to the rescue. It's not enough to just see your idols, because that won't change you. Here's what God says. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Now that's interesting, because you you remember Jacob? Jacob had his name changed. Remember that? had his name changed to Israel. And yet God still calls him Jacob. In other words, God doesn't think that you're Superman. God doesn't think that you've got it all together. This is not an address to shame you. It's an address to say, look, you may be able to fool everybody else. I know who you are. I know who you are. Look, I formed you. You're my servant. Oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I think it's interesting. Sometimes you can sort of figure out what God knows you need from the things that he tells us to encourage us. I've not forgotten you. I've not forgotten you. In other words, maybe one of the reasons that we cling so desperately to idols is we think God has forgotten us, and that's true, because honestly, your idols are usually connected to your strengths, but they're also connected to the pain in your story. Because your idols often are centered around the places where you've been hurt and are so afraid to be hurt again that you build like a little citadel, a little fortress. The, the irony and the tragedy, of course, is it makes you vulnerable, and when your idol is threatened you actually overreact it's one of the ways you can kind of figure out what your idols are when your reaction to something is out of proportion in other words okay this person didn't really didn't seem so impressed with me oh well there's other people <laughs> you know i don't have to have everybody like me if you're not able to say that if you're like this person didn't like me and i just can't can't get over that like i can't sleep i'm just like what can i do like that's an out of proportion reaction that may be a clue as to this kind of thing that you feel like you have to have for life. And God says, you don't need it because you have me. Remember, remember, remember means God has given you what you need and you've forgotten. In other words, idolatry is connected to gospel amnesia. Uh, Martin Luther said one time that before you break any of the Ten Commandments, you first break the first commandment. What is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And, And what Luther says is before you murder someone in your heart, you first believe that God is not big enough or good enough to take care of you and to protect you and to be your champion. And so you need to take matters into your own hands. Before you covet and say, I need this thing that my neighbor has, you first believe that God is less than he is. You believe that he doesn't care or he can't provide. And so I have to do it myself. So how does God do battle against our idolatry? He says, remember who I actually am. Because there are certain patterns, certain places that you regularly forget who I am and feel this desperate need to find something more reliable and more beautiful than God. So he calls us to remember. But it goes on, he says, verse 22, I have blotted your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. That's an incredible verse. And it turns upside down the way most people understand Christianity. Most people believe, okay, what it means to be a Christian is to say, okay, God, you caught me. I'm a bad person. Let me make it up to you. And if I really grovel enough, then maybe you'll accept me. Do you see that's not what it says here? Do You see the order here is exactly the opposite of that, isn't it? He says, return to me, not so that I'll Redeem you, return to me because I have redeemed you. God to the rescue is the heart of the gospel. Oh, Israel, brothers, sisters, why would you run after all these other things when God has already given you everything you need in the gospel? Why would you run after these things? And God doesn't just come and say, shame on you. You're foolish. He says, yes, you've been a fool. Return to me. I've already redeemed you. You didn't do anything that surprised me. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And then where does it go? He tells us to sing. So he calls us to remember. He invites us to return. And he tells us to sing. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Which means worship is our problem, but worship is also the healing. Worshiping the true God. But I think there's one other little thing that's really interesting. What were the trees and the rocks and the mountains? what were they at the beginning of this? They're the the fodder for making idols. And here's one of the things. Idols come from taking the good gifts that God has given us and disconnecting them from God. So when you think about the rocks and the trees not as gifts of God that were created to glorify Him, but you think of them as things that you can take and fashion and use how you want to provide for yourself, that's idolatry. Idolatry is disconnecting the gift from the giver of the gift. We actually make idols out of good gifts of God in line with the pain in our stories. And God says, remember who I am. Remember what I've done in the gospel. And don't just think about it, sing about it. Let your heart be enraptured with my beauty. A couple applications and then we're going to sing the doxology. Here's the first. Understanding idolatry helps us get to core issues rather than just surface behavior. Tim Keller said it this way once. If you pull up your fears... By the roots, you'll find your idols clinging to them. If you follow the trail of pain in someone's life, you will get a pretty good idea of the place where they said, don't go there. I'm never going there again. And and again, the thing is, the protection that they build around that ache actually makes them more vulnerable. And if you get anywhere near it, look out, because they're going to lash out at you. They think that they've protected themselves, but they actually have sort of projected for the whole world or anybody with eyes to see, this is where I'm vulnerable. Now that means that once you understand idolatry, you have a powerful tool to either encourage people or to manipulate them. So you have to steward it well. It also means that it's important that if you would actually befriend somebody and seek to encourage them, the heart of that is speaking gospel truth into the place of their fear, into the place where they regularly forget. There are some people here tonight who are like, I just, you know, I believe that God is sovereign. I'm just not sure that he actually is very loving. Like every one of us has certain things that we tend to regularly forget about God. And the more you know someone and know their story, the more you'll be able to speak gospel truth into the place where they regularly forget who God is or forget how good the gospel is. And if you want your friendships to not just be superficial, get to know their stories, get to know these fears, and then work hard to get the gospel truth into those places in the heart. So that's the first. You have to see who God really is. When you don't see who God really is, it makes all of your idolatry and sin seem reasonable. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon known as the Prince of Preachers, an English Baptist preacher from the 19th century, and he said this, when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. No big deal. While I I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle, but when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin, but when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Can you identify with that? In other words, it's like what Luther said, when you think that God is not good or not loving or not powerful, then your sin appears very reasonable but to see the beauty of God and the love of God most supremely demonstrated at the cross. Melt your heart. That's that line that we sang. "'Tis the look that melted Peter. "'Tis the face that Stephen saw when he's being... What, we should sing it again? Well, yeah, we might get um, It's Yeah, that'd be fine. Um, tis, "'Tis the look that melted Peter." Right? Like, I love that image because, you know, it's a reference to the cock crowing and then Peter catches Jesus' eye. Now, that's only in Mark's Gospel, you know that? And what's interesting about Mark's Gospel is that's the one that Peter basically dictated. That's what church history tells us, that Mark was a protege of Peter. So Mark's Gospel is basically Peter's account. And Peter's account records that I saw Jesus look me in the face, and he went and he wept bitterly. It broke his heart to see the love of Jesus. Tis the look, or the face that Stephen saw as he's being stoned, he's given a vision of Jesus standing. And that's the picture of Jesus, the defense attorney. It's the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus is pictured as standing before God. He's always pictured as seated at the right hand of God, and yet when Stephen is being stoned for blasphemy, Jesus stands in his defense before the Father and says, their verdict will not stand, my verdict will. That's my boy. Tis the the face that wept with Mary, right? Shortest verse in the Bible. In John, where Lazarus has died, Jesus wept. Two words. Two of the most important words in the Bible. Jesus wept even though he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead because Jesus is never distant from suffering. Right? Seeing who he is melts your heart. Melts your heart. The gospel is God to the rescue last point, beware of settling for getting better at talking about our idols. It's so important that we connect the dots, fight against sin by using grace, the gospel, to transform our heart. In other words, we need to preach the gospel to our hearts and to each other in specific ways that connect and even undermine our idols. Sometimes you have to just pour scorn on them. I remember a roommate of mine years and years ago who was about to be married and he was, felt like he was just idolizing this girl he was going to marry, and particularly her beauty. And you know, it's fascinating. Sometimes people don't like this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I, th- I think it's actually a good story. Wendy's like, I don't know what he's about to tell. Um, anyway, um, he said, you know what I, what, I, what I found helpful? I was like, what? He goes, I, I just try to remember you know, that this girl that I'm about to marry, that God could make a thousand girls prettier than her. He could. And one day, we're both going to be old and gray and fat. Now, you might think, who wants to marry somebody like that? Let me tell you, you want to marry somebody like that. Because if you marry somebody who only wants to marry you because you're young and beautiful, you'll be trapped forever. You will. You will. I remember another friend of mine um, saying one time that she basically decided she was going to marry this guy because they went on this trip with some other people and she didn't get to shower for like four days. And it was the end of the four days that he told her that he loved her and wanted to marry her. Right? I think there's there's something about that. About even like, it, while it might seem like ridiculous and not very romantic, it's actually realistic and it actually sets people free. If somebody worships you, you can't ever change. And feeling worshiped is horrible. You might like it for a little while, you don't want to live like that. You want someone that sees your sin but also envisions your glory, not somebody who thinks you're perfect right? Anyway, Um, ultimately we have to gaze upon Jesus and him crucified because the most beautiful, the most powerful picture of the love of God, the patience of God, the wrath of God is Jesus crucified. So you want to sing that song again now that you know it? Yeah, should we? I'll just play it. I'll just play it.